2016-17 social season. It's also the end of the benighted despotism of Mike Desch. Mm -hmm. It's next year. Uh, our two uh, new colleagues, uh, Joe Parent and Jean Goltz, will be uh, splitting the responsibilities for uh, the uh, EnDisc uh, seminar. So uh, it, uh, uh, stay tuned. So today's speaker is uh, Professor Wendy Perlman uh, from Northwestern University, the place where a lot of Dan's money goes to. Uh, pay his daughter's uh, tuition, so you may want to say thanks to Dan. Um, Wendy is uh, a uh, Harvard PhD and a Brown undergraduate, but I learned the most important yeah. part of her biography today, which is that she's from Nebraska, and my wife is also from Nebraska, so uh, she tells me that's where the best people are from, and I never contradict her on that. So, uh, don't, don't go and visit to, to <laughs> no, yeah, otherwise. I've been, I've been to Omaha. It's uh, great. Um, Wendy is the author of um, two books, uh -huh. no, three books, uh -huh. uh, uh, two uh, academic books, Violence, Nonviolence, and the Palestinian National Movement, uh, on Cape, well, I guess only one, Cambridge <laughs> University Press, and then two trade press books, mm -hmm. uh, a book on the nation uh, press, Occupied Voices, Stories of Everyday Life from the Second Intifada, mm -hmm. um, but she's also got a, uh, a new book out on uh, Harper Collins, We Caught Across the Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria. Mm -hmm. And if I'm reading your paper right in the description of this book, this is all one big research project that's uh, uh, manifested itself in a number of different uh, publications? Yeah, yeah, I think we think of it that way. Or, these, or this new project, this paper is sort of a new extension from, from that, but they're connected. Yeah. Super. So uh, please join me in giving a warm uh, Notre Dame welcome to Professor Wendy Pro. <laughs> Uh, thank you so so much for that. Um, so I'll be talking today about um, this this topic after the refugee crisis, post-state policies, socioeconomic class, a new Syrian diaspora in in Turkey and Germany. So as was just mentioned, this is something of an extension of of the project that I've been working on since 2012. Um, since 2012, I've been interviewing displaced Syrians in several trips, um, and eight or so countries. I've interviewed about 300 Syrians who've been displaced from Syria in, in Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, and so forth. And last summer, for the first time, uh, followed Syrians to, to Europe to capture their stories as well. So this book, which here I have a galley copy, it'll be out next, next month or early June, is a book, uh, it's basically an oral history of the Syrian conflict. So it begins with stories about what life was like in Syria before 2011, the lived experience of authoritarianism under both Assad regimes, and then stories of how protests began in a popular uprising, how it escalated, regime repression, militarization of the opposition struggle, the everyday experience of, of war, and then ultimately people's stories fleeing Syria as refugees. Um, so it is a, a collection of stories and reflections exclusively in the words of Syrians themselves. So I've gathered that material to produce this kind of people's history of, of the Syrian rebellion and, and war. Um, along the way, I've produced a couple of other things in different directions about um, especially questions of how people come to participate in high-risk descent uh, from a social movement, social theory angle. 
But as I followed Syrian stories, the refugee aspect of their lives has become more and more salient. The first rounds of interviews I did with Syrians in Jordan in 2012, people thought they had their bags packed, they thought they were going to return to Jordan at any time. They want, or sorry, return to Syria at any time. They thought they would return. There wasn't all that much to say about their experience in Jordan because their focuses were so much on Syria. And as I've gone back to interview Syrians each year in different places, their refugee aspect of their life experiences as time has gone by and they spent more and more time as, as refugees and living in, in exile, as the possibilities and reality that they might stay even longer really sinks in as the war continues with no end in sight. Um, people have become more and more um, thinking that they might be living in exile for the long haul. So as I've been following Syrians' lives, I've also become more and more interested in that refugee aspect, not just stories of, of war and protests inside Syria, but stories of, of, um, of stories and questions about what it means to be a refugee. So just to give you a, a little bit of a sense of the overall a case of forced migration from Syria from a pre-war population estimated 22 to 23 million. Um, Estimates vary, but something that you see often quoted, the 6.3 number, and sometimes up to 7.8 million are internally displaced, Syrians who've been forced from their homes but are still living inside Syria. Something like 5 million refugees in border countries, predominantly in Jordan, Turkey, and in Lebanon. And these, again, estimates of, of nearly a million are seeking asylum in, in Europe. And the paper has other numbers for those in, in Canada, the U.S., and Australia as well. So thinking about this, uh, we, and this is to sort of loosely connect this talk to security, which so my understanding is the topic of the seminar. And when, when Mike asked me to, 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 to present here early in, in, I think it was last July, um, I thought that I might be worried, doing work more clearly related to security. And this is actually as far away from security as my work has ever gotten. So apologies for that. And thank you for your patience on a topic that's only loosely related to what brings us all together. But my forced migration is clearly filled with security-related issues about borders, illegal or legal crossing of borders, of new populations coming into host countries and not necessarily knowing from where they come. There's always the issue of the refugee warrior who goes back and forth over borders to fight inside, the sheer humanitarian issue of lives lost and so forth. There are all sorts of security issues wrapped up in forced migration. But at the same time, I'm interested, especially in this, this paper, about more sort of quiet, long-term processes. The refugee crisis is often phrased as a crisis. There's the urgency of the current moment. But I think what we're also seeing, especially in the Syrian case, is the foundations of what will likely be a long-term Syrian diaspora. We are seeing now these foundational steps. Many of these Syrian refugees will not return home. So it's an interesting opportunity. We can now point around the world at established diasporas, but how many of us had the chance to see a diaspora in its beginning formation, something that in a generation or two there might be a whole large numbers of Syrian Turks or Syrian Germans. This is a chance to watch this diasporization process from its beginning steps and maybe begin to see how there are different patterns or different types of variation across countries, across times, across the profile of, of refugees. So I'm attracted to this, this idea. Um, how this diasporization will happen. It will have implications for the countries where refugees settle. It will have implications for Syria as well and any type of expat connections that some of these Syrians have back home. 
So there are many different aspects on which to focus in thinking about diasporization, the processes by which populations become diasporas. And I've been interested in focusing on the issue of, of socioeconomic class and the connections between socioeconomic class and forced migration. And I do so for a, for a few reasons. One is socioeconomic class is important. The wealth and education level and the class identity that individuals had before they fled their homeland affects many dimensions of their post-flight lives. It affects where they go, how far they get, their, their aspirations, their expectations, their sense of what they've lost, uh, their possibilities for integration, and so forth. At the same time, my understanding of, of this from refugee studies, and I'm a newcomer to refugee studies, but from what I've been able to, to see and verify with people who are, have a much longer history in the field, is that there's relatively little attention, scholarly attention, to questions of socioeconomic class in refugee studies. That given the focus on the legal aspects of, of international humanitarian law, there's often a focus on refugees as right holders and what kinds of rights do they hold. Um, from a more cultural studies perspective, looking at them as a population apart with certain identity characteristics um, that are affected by race or ethnicity or, or gender that set them apart from either the people from which they came or where they are in their new host society. Um, and there might be something of a resistance to analyzing refugees and their own socioeconomic background. Um, I think among some people there might be a worry that this might in some way, even asking the question, almost undermine the legitimacy of refugees' claims of the vulnerability that they're fleeing persecution and violence, to start differentiating who has more or less resources. So there could be almost a political sort of resistance to opening that, that, that Pandora's box that people come in with different levels of social and economic and so forth, the resources. But the distinctions matter, and I think they are especially vivid in the Syrian case, given the large size of the Syrian middle class, but the range of, of, of Syrians from rural poor folks who have never had much education to engineers and doctors who are also among them fleeing, and the indiscriminate and mass character of the violence in the war in Syria is forcing people of all social classes to, to flee. Um, so, so, so there are complexities, of course, of thinking about socioeconomic cl class and how it affects or it's affected by forced migration. And this, I think, um, comes might come through in the paper to some degree. Um, I'm interested, as we'll go through in this presentation, on, on the question of group level stratification, so di differentiation variation across space, across different host state countries, and difference is in the relative gaps or levels of um, Dis socioeconomic disparity between refugees um, across different countries. There's also questions at an individual level of, of, of analysis, a, a single refugee's individual level class status, and Syrians as, as individuals, their, uh, the upward or downward mobility or other more complicated mobilities of how their class changes from their pre-flight to their post-flight reality. I think hovering in the background of the paper is an intergenerational question. Will the children of Syrian refugees born and raised in exile have the same social class background that their parents did um, or not, and how does that maybe vary by where it is that their, their parents have settled? 
And another big issue that's only mentioned really at the end of, of the paper is this question of what is socioeconomic class anyway, that there it can, might contain of multiple types of resources, economic and income being one, but also certain social or cultural or symbolic capital that are all wrapped up in social economic class. And to what degree are these different types of resources or different types of capital fungible? And to what degree are refugees, again, depending on what they come in with and where they go, able to transform economic capital into social capital or social capital into economic capital and, and how is all of that affected by, by where they go and who they are. So all of this is, is complex um, and inviting sort of analysis at different, at different levels, different levels of analysis. And of course, as I also talk about in the paper, all of this is riddled with questions of endogeneity. If class affects where refugees settle and then where they settle affects their subsequent class trajectories, all of this is, is really mixed in. And there's a little bit of thinking in the paper about the question of is there any way to, to have, work with this endogeneity not as a problem that stops at the, at the outgo any type of analysis on this question, but instead some way to leverage the fact that there's multiple feedback loops and interconnections um, in some way to, to create more insight and understanding about the Syrian refugee, refugee crisis. So I haven't sorted all of that out. Again, it's a preliminary paper. This, this book has just been laid to rest. It's still in production. And this is my first attempt to think of a new set of questions after this project is, is sort of, is sort of wrapped, wrapped up. So the question then, given that there are many different types of questions to ask, um, the question that I do ask in this paper, which is really sort of my first attempt to get on paper some thoughts and observations and instincts that I've gathered while spending time um, in the field, and especially in Turkey and Germany, speaking with Syrian refugees, is this quest of how, question of how do state policies accentuate or possibly level class differences among refugees? So my instinct here, or hypothesis, some degree, is that the refugee's prior class status does not have an unmediated impact on their subsequent socioeconomic trajectories. Rather, they are filtered through the circumstances that they encounter in their new places of residence, and thus their socioeconomic trajectories must vary with the circumstances that they themselves face in those new countries of residence. So the paper is a preliminary exploration of how state contexts of reception and absorption shape refugees' experience of socioeconomic class and the class stratification among those refugees through comparative analysis of Syrian refugees in Turkey and Germany. It's become a little bit clear in, in the statement of the, of the hypothesis here. So in Turkey, the largest uh, ref uh, absorber of, of Syrian refugees, or, or um, at this point, something like three million registered Syrian refugees. I propose that in Turkey, where the state has been relatively slow in issuing and enforcing regulations, and thus, especially in the first years of the Syrian conflict, largely left Syrians to go it alone. Turkey played, relatively speaking, kind of a laissez-faire attitude towards these refugees. Slow in issuing regulations, slow in, in uneven enforcing them. I hypothesize that this relatively weak level of state intervention in refugees' affairs compounds the socioeconomic differences that Syrian refugees carry with them. Refugees with greater personal resources can carve pathways to some level of comfort and success, while those with fewer resources 
meet with little protection from exploitation and further impoverishment. So relatively laissez-faire state, accentuating the socioeconomic differences that refugees have pre-flight. In Germany, um, the largest uh, absorber of Syrian refugees in Europe, by contrast, the state and its bureaucracy impose an overpowering presence, leaving asylum seekers' everyday experiences heavy, heavily structured by law and integration programs, such strong intervention, the state is there in almost every aspect of refugees' lives, affects the richer and poorer among refugees without distinction, and thereby lessens the significance of those socioeconomic differences at least during the initial years. So the argument then, essentially, weak state intervention, expanding or accentuating, amplifying socioeconomic differences among refugees, strong state intervention having kind of an equalizing or leveling effect um, on those socioeconomic distinctions uh, among, among Syrian refugees. Of course, there are complications in comparing the Turkish and German case that I tried to address in, in, the, in the paper, the sort of awareness of this problem, um, the, a certain selection bias, and that a certain degree of class resources is necessary for refugees to even get from Turkey to Germany. Um, this, the, 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 pop, the, the populations of Syrian refugees also might vary sort of systematically between Turkey and Germany in different ways, but the paper discusses how, um, how uh, even given those differences, given the, the ex extremely large number of refugees in, in Turkey, some three million, um, that there are a large enough number that there are poor and rich among them, there are less and well more educated among them, and so forth. So one thing I've been thinking about going forward, if there might be some sort of a matching type technique to find Syrian refugees in Turkey and Germany, both poorer in both places, richer in both places, and then be able to maybe track, trace them and see where those, those go. But some ways to sort of um, uh, go forward with the project, even given that there are differences, um, although they not, might not be as stark as they seem, and the paper sort of gives some statistics to that, to that extent. So the rest of the paper then goes through four realms of where I think we might see this relatively accentuating or, min or equalizing effect of state policies on on, um, on socioeconomic class, legal status, housing and residence, education, and, and work. So all of this, again, is quite new for me. This has been a way to sort of put some ideas on, on paper and gather some factual information I haven't had. There might be mistakes in, in here, so I don't know if I have it all right. It's a complex situation, but I'll go through these, these realms now um, in the Turkish and German cases. So in Turkey, as far as legal status, um, Syrian refugees are not recognized officially as, as refugees. Instead, the status is temporary protection status. This when refugees began flowing into Turkey. Turkey treated them as guests. There was an open door policy, but very much a sense that these people aren't necessarily here to stay. And they've been very slow in, in realizing that some of these folks probably are here to stay. So the status then is legally one of temporary protection status without clear avenues for any sort of long-term integration or long-term residence. Um, as of fall 2015, the estimates were that something up to a quarter million refugees were unregistered. So although temporary protection requires a certain registration with uh, a new state agency that was formed in 2014 to deal with the refugee inflow, um, something like a quarter of a million of refugees are not even registered with the state. So this lack of strong bureaucratic oversight um, allows uh, 
so many refugees to go to go unregistered. Um, and that difference between having a legal status in which, again, this is all pretty preliminary. These are kind of hunches I'm, I'm thinking about which might, might play out more than their really firm arguments, is that um, the lack of strong bureaucratic oversight of refugees' legal status is a setting in which different refugees meet with different foundations on which to build more or less secure futures. Those who register with the Turkish state are, better able to access better service, basic services and protection. Those who slip through the cracks, enabled by the fact that there really are big cracks to slip through in the Turkish context, remain unregistered and are especially susceptible to, to exploitation. Um, this sort of a, a gap is potentially exacerbated by recent discussions um, from the Turkish president about perhaps extending citizenship to some Syrians, perhaps on what seems to be a selective basis, Erdogan, in justifying the idea of some naturalization of Syrian refugees, has said things like, they're highly qualified people among them, they're engineers, lawyers, and doctors, which has many people worried that, that there will be some sort of uh, criteria on which Syrian refugees, some Syrian refugees might be given citizenship um, that, that could be um, targeting those who have the most skills to offer to, this, to the um, to the Turkish economy, um, further creating the possibility that there might be sort of two tiers of Syrians in Turkey, those who have seen as having desirable skills, middle-class professional qualifications, that Turkey would like to stay so that they're given citizenship, and, and the mass of the poor who are not so useful, who remain even further uh, in uh, situations of precarity and, and informal status. Um, Housing and as far as housing and residence, there's something like 26. I've seen different numbers. 25, 26 is the most recent I've seen of state state-run camps. Only 10% of Syrian refugees live in these camps, which are very highly acclaimed for being well-equipped and well-run and very clean. And Turkey's extremely proud of these these state-run camps. But just 10% of Syrians live there. The overwhelming majority then um, are are urban refugees, where refugees are just scattered in towns and villages. Uh, they go wherever they can, and they find whatever housing they're able, and they piece together money to put it together. So, so Syrian refugees are especially um, then knowing they have to pay their own way once they leave the camps, or the camps have also reached um, uh, um, uh, capacity, so there's no more space in the, uh, the camps have reached capacity, so there's people aren't allowed to continue living there, and many who, who are living there want to get out to have greater freedom and normalcy of having something like normal lives living in, in apartments. Um, from what I've seen, the way that Syrian refugees are able to find housing once they're out there in the cold world of Turkey on its own is, is most usually through familial networks. There isn't state agencies to help provide that. People use the friends and families they already have to try to find housing and often use friends and families to get hosted for a while until they get on their feet. And I wonder how this might also serve to reinforce certain class distinctions. A middle class person is more likely to have middle class family and friends who have already kind of navigated that housing, can offer a place to stay and help them further navigate, whereas a poor refugee is more likely to have friends and family who might also be poor and be homeless or living in a very precarious situation like tents um, that the, the landowner provides for those working in the fields and so forth. So again, if what, if what matters, it's not state, uh, state services providing these this kind of intervention, but your own resources and your own social networks that you can marshal those who come in with, with more resources, familial, the middle class and, and above, and those poor are, are likely to go in, in two different directions from the start, which then might have increasing 
returns to, um, to the advantages or disadvantages with which one, one begins. Um, there's not a state-determined distribution um, that requires or, or guards, uh, guides Syrian refugees to any one aspect. So most have, have begun in the, in the southeast where they've crossed, crossed the border and then gradually moved to other, to other centers. But all of this is not guided by, um, by the state. It's guided by Syrians' own networks and search for economic opportunities and so forth. So um, it's on the ground creating this, and we'll contrast this with the German experience in a bit. Um, in, in education, it wasn't until January 2017 that for the first time there were more Syrian refugee kids in school than out of school, and that was 60% in January 2017. Before that, from every year from the Syrian crisis, more Syrian kids were outside, not in, not in school, than, than in it. Um, the rates of, of uh, schooling are much higher in the camps where um, where there are schools on site and so forth. Outside the camps, estimates are something like 25% of Syrian, Syrian refugee kids are, are in schools. There are two uh, tracks of schools. There's an, a right for, for Syrian refugee kids to go into Turkish, the Turkish public school system that's uh, accessed at very low rates given sort of a lack of understanding and uh, parents understanding that they do have that right. Syrian parents um, not wanting not thinking it would be useful for their kids to have a Turkish language education because they expect to go back to Turkey and so forth. So the majority of, of Syrian kids who are in school are in what are called temporary education centers, which are Arabic language institutions that have a kind of modification of the Syrian national curriculum um, that the Turkish state allows. Um, the main impediment for accessing any of these schools and especially the Syrian or the Arabic language schools that seem more desirable to Syrian parents is, is financial. That the, these Syrian or the Arabic language schools typically um, charge tuition. In addition, there are the schools are, are, are um, not as plentiful as people would like, so often requires transportation costs to access and reach a school besides other costs like uh, textbooks and so forth. So it costs money to get to and go to the school, and in addition, parents will lose whatever income they might have had from child labor. And child labor is thought of as, people use terms like it's an epidemic of a uh, problem of, of, of child labor. Estimates are something like 300 to 500,000 school-age Syrian refugees are working um, often 11, 12-hour days in factories and sweatshops or, or in agriculture and so forth. So here in education, I think, is a spe special place where um, where uh, you see those who have the resources to, to be able to forego income from child labor, to be able to pay whatever the costs are for tuition, can access education, which is the most important avenue and, and engine of, of continued uh, socioeconomic mobility. And those who don't have those resources coming in are not able to access that for their children and likely to go sort of further into to impoverishment or, or situation where they're barely um, able to make Ends, ends meet. The last realm um, is, is work, and, uh, and Syrian labor in Turkey is overwhelmingly informal. Until January 2016, Syrians were barred from working in the formal labor market, so couldn't formally work at all. Since then, per work permits have been made available to Syrian refugees, but it's in ways in which it's, it's practically prohibitive. It's, tiny, tiny number have accessed them. 
uh, employers have to pay to get a contract, fill out this, all this paperwork, and demonstrate a contract that shows that that, that Syrian worker is, being, is, um, is uh, making minimum wage. Clearly, the majority of Syrian refugees are working in realms in which the employer does not want to give them minimum wage. They're working in the informal economy, which is, an, which is very, very large in Turkey already. Um, again, a symptom of sort of state intervention in this realms allows a, a, la a large informal um, econo inco economy where Syrians are working and tend to be in, in underpaid, difficult conditions, long hours, low benefits, um, subject to all sorts of vulnerability. If the employer doesn't pay, they are afraid to go to the police to even to issue any sort of complaint because they... Um, uh, because they're working illegally and formally anyway. Um, so the vast majority of Syrians in Turkey who are working are working in this, um, in these informal settings, heavily subject to, to all sorts of exploitation. But at the same time, what I think is really interesting is there's a, arguably a new Syrian business class that Turkey prides itself in a very open business environment. And there is estimates of something like $10 billion that, that wealthy Syrians often sort of the stereotype of merchants from Aleppo, have essentially repatriated or, or moved their capital and their businesses and are now a flourishing bourgeoisie um, that in, in Turkey. So something like but the estimates by March 2016, there have been some 4,000 Syrian-owned firms. There were none as of December 2010. All of this is new Syrian-owned businesses, such that over a third of foreign-owned owned firms in Turkey are now owned by um, by Syrians. Um, and as the, the paper discusses, various sorts of anecdotes about Syrian businessmen in, in Turkey talking about one of the things that facilitated this new business is, um, is a total lack of red tape and bureaucracy. It was a very open environment, a business environment, to come in and quickly create a business um, that is now can be, can be flourishing. Um, they just bring in their money and, 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 and start going. So there's a little sort of a, a side bit in the, in the paper about wondering in, in Mersen, which is um, uh, a, port, a port city, um, the largest port in, in Turkey, which is geographically close to Syria, there is, seems to be a special place for this import-export Syrian elite that is doing from Mersen business back home to Syria, taking advantage of the connections they still have in Syria and elsewhere in the, in the Middle East. The geographical position of the city sort of allows it to connect to that regional trade. So I wonder if there's almost something like a, pos like a parallel here with, the, with Cubans, the Cuban merchant elite in, in Miami. The geographical position of the city, which allows it to be a regional hub for import and exports. And there's uh, some arguments that one of the things that really helped um, the sort of rise of a merchant elite in the Miami case was that Cuban entrepreneurs were able to benefit from class differentiation within the Cuban community in Miami. That the sort of the elite um, merchants were able to take advantage of a privileged access to the labor of poorer Cubans, that they had this sort of spoke the same language and could get, get take advantage of uh, the labor of the poor members of the community. And that also that was a sort of a captive market for, for goods or services that from one Cuban to another knew that they could market it. So there's another way in which I'm thinking about how class differentiations um, might play into uh, to all of this and the trajectory that we're seeing among, among Turkey's, uh, Syrians in, in Turkey. So again, all of this is, I can't really say these are arguments as much as hypotheses and hunches, and I'm just 
very curious for ideas for what seems most fruitful to continue exploring or what seems not really to hold up and so forth. Um, just quickly to go through on the, on the German case. Um, I could talk more about, in, in, in Germany, this paper goes through, there's sort of a new three-year residency permit versus a, a, um, a new uh, one-year residency permit, both of which are, are renewable for, for Syrian refugees. But what I find to be most prominent salient in the German case is that the degree to which paperwork, appointments, waiting time, the sheer level of bureaucracy, this heavy role of the state in regulating every aspect of the steps of these different legal contracts and paperwork and so forth of um, dominating the legal status that new refugees need to acquire in so many different domains uh, leaves many Syrians feeling like they, they dedicate the bulk of their first months in Germany simply to paperwork and this has an equalizing effect. Rich and poor Syrians alike have to go through all of these bureaucratic hoops to get the paperwork they, they need. And to move ahead in the residency process, asylum seekers' material resources matter less than their place in line, like in this line, waiting outside Berlin to register in the first place, um, or the sometimes perplexing decisions of bureaucratic agencies, who gets a three-year permit and who gets a one-year permit and so forth. Um, which sometimes seems to be kind of baffling, but all of these are ways in which whatever resources you come in with don't really matter so much once you're confronting the reality of the German state that's regulating, that's regulating everything. The, 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 the paper talks about how a group of Syrian coders tried to, to address this problem of, of the bureaucracy and how baffling it is by creating an app called Crazy to help refugees and others navigate which form you need and which agency you you need to, to go to and, and, and so forth. Um, as far as housing and residence, there's a quota system distributing refugees across the federal states. According to the 2016 Integration Act, asylum seekers can only move from the particular county in which they are signed if they find a job that meets some of their expenses. So how, where people live, highly regulated by the state, not the laissez-faire system as, as in Turkey. Um, refugee shelters, asylum seekers must live in their initial reception center or living facility for their first three months. So refugees with a big wave coming in 2015 were assigned to live in, 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 in shelters. These ranged um, you know, from sports halls and old municipality buildings, sports uh, school gymnasiums, to the hangars of the Tempelhof Airport here in Berlin, um, this inflated structure people call the balloon. Um, uh, and so forth. What I found to be so interesting about shelters, and I spent a little bit of time volunteering or otherwise sort of checking these out when I was in Germany last summer, with reference to social class, is that they bring together refugees of different nationalities and of different class backgrounds. For Syrians, what this meant is that the, the poorer Syrians and well-to-do, uh, a rural peasant who's never gone to school and someone with an engineering degree, people who maybe never would have spoken to each other in Syria or ever met each other in Syria are living together. They're sharing a bathroom, they're waiting together in line for the cafeteria, they might be roommates and so forth. It doesn't matter then what, what, what resources they had. They all are living in the shelter. And this is accentuated, especially in larger cities, that it's really difficult to find housing outside the shelters. The larger cities, people, the constant word of, of, of conversation is that there is a total housing shortage and crisis, even if you might have means to find an apartment and refugees all accessing the basic means of, of, of unemployment insurance, which all unemployed in, in, in Germany are allowed. It's really difficult to find 
in apartments. And some with different class backgrounds might have better ease in terms of language or social networks or computer savvy to maybe better navigate um, the search for an apartment. But it seems pretty prohibitively difficult for all. And in my own observation of Syrian refugees in Germany, what seems to be most important for allowing a refugee to get out of the shelter, to find an apartment so we can get out of the shelter and move on and, and live um, independently is uh, the luck of having met it, made a German friend, somebody who can help navigate the paperwork involved, somebody who can help translate the language, um, somebody who can be there every step of the way when landlords and the agencies and so forth say no. Um, there might be, again, some way in which class affects which Syrian refugees are more likely to make a German friend or not, but it's a stochastic element which isn't strictly um, reducible to socioeconomic class in the way that in, in, um, in, uh, in, 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 in Turkey people are more likely to be able to find a place to live. Um, as far as education, a critical thing here is the, the critical role of, of German language. So. Um, after at least three months in the country, children are required to, to go to schools. Now, the, the demand um, is much greater than the supply. Germany's trying to catch up, so this is not uh, the perfect um, implication of uh, or application of what German law says it should be of all children in school because some children are waiting simply because the, um, they're catching up in terms of training new German teachers and, and so forth. But um, so there's a backlog, but ultimately this would have this sort of equalizing impact of a law that's really more heavily enforced that children should be in school. Adult asylum seekers as well are expected to take an integration course consisting of 600 hours of German language as well as 30 hours of sort of cultural orientation. Um, again, the supply is less than demand, and there are some people who are waiting to get, waiting to find a space in German classes that are all filled up. Um, but there's an expectation of these German language classes, and there's no way around it. Um, in, in Turkey, a Syrian can arrive and within a couple of days find a job, learn whatever Turkish he needs on the job, or maybe not learn, learn any, and, and be able to work in all sorts of fields in the informal economy. In Germany, it doesn't matter who you are and where you, where, what you came from. You've got to sit in 600 hours of German class. Um, and this effective barrier is really present even for, for, for menial jobs. My, my research seems to show, and, and others continually enforce, even to get a job washing dishes in Germany. Well, Germans will say you need to have a level of German because you need to be able to read the health code and so forth. There's not the space for, for finding work without the language that, um, that, 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 that uh, is available to Syrians in the Turkish informal economy. So this is something of a break. Regardless of what skill and so forth you come, everybody's got to learn language before they can slowly make their way into the, um, the, uh, the labor force. This is, might be a bit exaggerated, but relatively speaking and comparative to, to Turkey. Um, so the final element here then is, is work, again, heavily regulated by law. Before 2000, September 2013, um, asylum seekers needed to wait one year before working. That's steadily been reduced to nine months and now to, to three months. Again, even finding work is this, this endless spiral of, of permits and so forth. Um, uh, but it is, it is a, a, and the language hurdle is all in a situation that the refugees, regardless of the skill level they have in, or, or their income and maybe the desire to create their own enterprise, are limited by the heavy role of the state um, and the regulations and so forth. Uh, and in general, um, Germany ranks lower than Turkey in being a sort of the openness of the business environment. So, so whereas the same folks who in Turkey might be have uh, created a new business and now 
you know, have, a, have an enterprise and rank among those 4,000 firms, in Germany are more likely to be sitting in the shelter, waiting for language classes, being in language classes, and, and struggling with, with forms. So all of that um, gives you some sort of lay, lay of the land. All of this is, 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 is filled with questions. I feel like this is clearly a diasporic process that I'm watching and we're all watching unfold. So it's watching something as it's moving. That's difficult. There are lots of unknowns. What will happen politically in Turkey? What will happen politically in, in Germany? Germany? What will ever happen politically in Syria in terms of, of the war and possibilities for going back? But these are some initial hunches about the, about the fruitfulness of socioeconomic classes, a new kind of angle on which to, to look at the Syrian refugee crisis, what's happening to refugees' experiences now, and where all it is headed. So I will very much welcome questions of, of any or questions or feedback of, of any type. I'm not wed to anything here. I'm just sort of searching for what, where to go with, with this. So um, with that, I'll, I'll open up. Thanks. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Wendy. Uh, it's our custom, but not a, uh, a firm Teutonic uh, uh -huh. order that uh, the uh, uh, moderator moderates. Uh -huh. uh, so I'm happy to do that, unless you want to. No, that sounds wonderful. Well, we don't want to yeah. here anyhow. Right. Right. Uh, so the, uh -huh. uh, the uh, floor is open. Uh, questions, comments? Nisha? Uh -huh. um, so, Wendy, yeah. this is a fantastic project and talk and presentation. Thank you. Um, I learned a lot from it. So I guess I'm just sort of riffing off of your question of, sort of where, where to go with right. this. And one of the things that really, or two things. One thing that struck me uh, that might be an interesting theoretical hook, but it's not really something that you uh, dig into in the papers too much, would be to think about network analysis. Mm -hmm. um, because that yeah. seems like a really key difference, where in Turkey, um, the, the refugees can leverage their networks, whereas in Germany, they can't. And that has implications for all of these different dependent variables effectively that you're looking at. And it would be interesting to see whether, you know, just, it seems like you could come up with some interesting generalizations about the, the importance of networks for refugee communities and diasporas generally, but then also it'd be interesting to see whether networks matter and how they might matter at different socioeconomic statuses. Is that a word? Um, then, yeah. <laughs> status I. Um, but then um, my, I think the other really, or another really interesting angle here is to think through the policy recommendations. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it strikes me that that's just going to, that, you know, that's a normatively hard thing to do, mm. I think, um, because it really depends on who you are, right? Are you the Turkish government wanting to improve your economy? Are you someone working for a humanitarian organization? I mean, there are so many different ways to cut into this, but that would be, I think it's something that you're going to have to do, and you're going to have to kind of put yourself in the shoes of these different policymakers um, to, to think it through. Excellent. Thank you. That's super, super helpful. I could say just when, even, um, just the Custom also sort of to, to respond at all, or, or just yes, like, yes, okay. unless they've really got you backed into the. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean this is there's not much to say except that thanks, thanks for that. But the policy recommendations is hard because, on on, on the, I mean I've, 
I've spent time with Syrian refugees in both places who are just filled with complaints about where they are. And the same ones who had filled with complaints about how bad things are in Turkey are now in Germany. And, and on, on the one hand, you can see that the sort of Germany's a, a situation where it's maybe giving people, the, the, the relatively poor or less educated, a, a chance. Um, it, whereas the same folks will be, um, have their kids working 14 hours in a sweatshop in Turkey. And, and now there's a chance at education and, and mobility and so forth. At the same time, the bureaucracy has many refugees sometimes feeling like, if I were in Turkey, I would just be working already. Um, so it's, and of course, these countries are coming in with very different levels of resources. So, so you can't just say, well, Turkey should just be more like Germany, you know, with its three million refugees and, and weaker economy. So anyway, I'll, I'll, I've been thinking about it, but I'm not quite sure what to, what to say. But I know that I should say something. So thanks. Okay. Uh, Seta? Um, yes, yeah. thank you so much. Um, I had the pleasure to talk to you a little bit yeah. soon. Yeah. Um, hearing your talk and also reading your paper kind of reminded me in uh, after the end of the Second World War, Germany had the guest worker program. Yeah. So if we could maybe see, of course, um, probably in Germany was like also very highly recu uh, regulated, but the rhetoric was people will return. So I'm wondering if Turkey could maybe have that a little bit with the Syrian refugees. Turkey, I don't think okay, they are just here, it's not the same context, not the same circumstance, but once the war is over, they will return, and then it'll be interesting to see uh, as the decades pass by, will it be the similar situation as we yeah. had in Germany, where people remain and their families reunited, etc. Another thing I'm wondering is, if you think about the whole integration or even assimilation, despite each state having different policies, having uh, like weaker or more regulated. Mm -hmm. Another aspect could be the whole cultural aspect. If you're coming from Syria, you are more likely to look like Turkish people or like Kurdish people. You have this Middle Eastern look, while um, in Germany you stand out more easily. And how does that even impact just being a migrant or someone who looks Middle Eastern and who's Muslim and not German and Christian? What kind of implications would that have in being able to integrate into the Turkish versus the German um, population? Yeah. Um. <laughs> no, like the last question, I think it's, it's huge, and I think that I, I haven't given as much, especially as I still focus on class here, these issues of, of culture and religiosity and, and that sort of thing, but I think it's, it's, it's huge. There's a question of, of, of integration later, but I think there's also, that's part of the selection effects of who, who winds up where in the first place, is that, that, that I think Syrians don't get on a boat, risk everything, and pay everything to get to Germany unless they're pretty comfortable with the idea of of living in, in a Western environment. And I think there are definitely a contingent of Syrians who, who want to live in a, in, a, in a Muslim environment, which is more culturally conservative, which is a little bit culturally closer to home, and want to st stay in, in Turkey or feel like they could make a, imagine themselves longer in Turkey because of that. So culture and religiosity and conserv cultural conservatism or social values ha has effect on who goes where and then also what happens to them yeah. later. And so it's a lot to sort out. Yeah, and I also think it would also be interesting to um, see what is the views of the Turkish citizens there. Like I was in Istanbul and uh, Izmir over the winter break, and I was surprised I hadn't been in Turkey for a while to see so many children begging. Yeah. They were clearly not, they didn't really speak any Turkish, and you feel really uncomfortable. It's like really little kids under the age of 10, and uh, people would tell me, don't even, you know, don't interact with them, don't even look at them. 
Yeah, and um, I was also in Germany, but I didn't really see that yeah. happening. Yeah, those kids are more likely to be in school or in shelters where they have yeah. some sort of programming. Great. Uh, Carrie? Um, thank you. This is a really important project, and um, I'm thrilled that um, I learned an awful lot from my in-depth investigation of this. Um, so I wonder if you could say more about how exactly people get to Germany and what the process is for that. Um, some of the concerns from a, a theoretical or like testing standpoint is going to be kind of an endogeneity problem where you may have the poorest of the poor forced to stay in Turkey and very wealthy want to stay in Turkey. And so those who get on a boat to go to Germany look, it may look like it has a more middling effect, but in reality, that's just the, the the kind of people who are willing or able to get over there. Um, I also, just throwing out ideas, I wonder if the, the effects are different um, or would have different implications for certain subsets of society, like women or widows. Um, so there was a lot of focus on children and children's education, but staying in Turkey when you're a, a war widow or a single woman may be a very different experience than in Germany. And so I wonder if there are, um, there are sort of gender dynamics as well that you would be able to explore. Um, and then finally, this might be a really interesting opportunity to tease out um, the difference between money and skills. And so when all of, when someone's wealth is non-portable and anchored in a community in Syria and, but, you know, is inherited or um, otherwise acquired and from kind of middle class skills, um, this might be a really interesting opportunity to be able to tease out how those work in very different ways um, or if they work in much the same ways. That's great. Thank you. I, um, yeah, the last question I'm totally fascinated by too. Um, I don't know if you have, you or anyone else has any hints about, I mean, the best way to go about sort of disentangling them. But I think there are definitely, um, because many, for many Syrian families that the wealth was property, which has now been destroyed, or that, that sort of thing, that there are people who, who um, find themselves with, without, not able to access the assets that they once, they once had. And besides the fact that the, the trip itself, in terms of how people get to Germany, it's um, the largest wave coming in 2015 when the borders were, were relatively open. And since then, with the EU deal with Turkey, the borders are, are much more now closed. Um, paying, paying smugglers whatever they are demand to um, to cross the Mediterranean by boat. And if you have even more resources, you can pay for a, a forged passport and so forth and go by airplane. Um, but ab but I think, yeah, this and this is, I try to talk a bit, I'm not sure how to deal with the end endogeneity problem. And I think you, 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 you really nailed it and said it you know, better than I did in the paper. The, the poor can't leave Turkey and the very wealthy might not want to because they're, 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 doing, they're doing pretty well and don't necessarily want to leave where they have a firm that's going quite well and they're able to access their business networks and sell things back into Syria, they don't want to go on a boat, risk their lives, and, and live in a and live in an airport again for, for 16 months while they go back to studying German verbs. 
you know, why that that would that would only be a step a step down. So for the but for the very wealthy that can make that 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 choice. Now they might think maybe sort of long term for their children, but they're also able to afford probably more elite schools and, and things of that sort. So yeah, the very wealthy would see starting up going to Germany as being a, a step down and the and the very poor, it's not an option. They simply can't. Although there is a lot of borrowing and so forth, and this might then link the first question to the third question of, of a lot of people in order to pay for the really expensive smuggling trip have gone into a tremendous amount of debt and borrowed. And how do you borrow money? Well, it's the social networks of borrowing here and there and so forth. Or, or um, so, so there is. I mean, the, the surveys from the from the the the, the agency dealing with foreigners and, and migrants in, in Germany has it doesn't date on what people's income level was, but as far as as education as something of a proxy, that they're relatively equal. 26 to 28 percent had the highest level of education they reached was university. The highest level of education they reached was like secondary school, or the highest level of education they reached was um, was grammar school among the Syrian population in in Germany. So there is a bit of a of a of a spread that some because the stereotype is something like these are all the the, the wealthy middle class who who um, were not going to be able to be a, a accountants or architects in in um, in Turkey because their qualifications wouldn't be. They were falling in that middle, um, but there is there is something of a, of a spread. Um, but at the same time, there's if you having enough resources to be able to pay for the journey is a necessary condition for getting to Europe or was. So I'm I'm not sure there's endogeneity totally built into this, um, and I'm not sure where where to go and how and how to deal. With it, I don't think the best place is not to go in terms of not to frame it as two comparative cases and so forth. Um, I've talked to some people who think, well, maybe there's some sort of a, a matching to be able to find Syrian refugees who meet the different profiles in three different places in the, the two different places and see what their paths are, or if there's some sort of complex organic way. If this is just painting an overall picture of a, of a complex diaspora, um, I don't know what you if you guys have any thoughts. Oh. We've had a yeah. lot of discussion about kind of the Syrian refugee resettlement problem, right? And uh -huh. that once they get into a system within the UN, and I'm I'm hopelessly ignorant about many of these processes, so please correct me if mm -hmm. I'm wrong. Um, but that there, once once there's a they register with the United Nations or um, kind of a global resettlement agency, that there's also there's a random element to who gets right. assigned where, particularly if you're coming to the United States or Canada or somewhere like right. that. Is that maybe one way to try and address this and say, look at differences in how the U.S., which I assume has a fairly laissez-faire program um, for its uh -huh. refugee resettlement versus like Canada, which may be more structured and not to like create right. more work for you or anything, right, right, right. Um, but if this is going to be a much longer term project, but if yeah. you were doing that as kind of a control, just test. Yeah, that would be interesting. I mean, I think there is that difference in the in the U.S. And the, the problem is that something like like one percent of all refugees are well are resettled, but still, that's enough to give you something. And the, the numbers in Canada are are you know at least twice what the numbers are in, in the U.S. But there's, I mean, the, I think the preference is for the refugees who are most vulnerable, but then sometimes also have. I mean, it's it's a complex thing that, that, that in terms of the resettlement. Criteria. My understanding is, and you might know more than I do, the, the, for those who are particularly vulnerable, but then sometimes also those who have English language skills or already have families. So there's the criteria of both vulnerability and 
and any sort of assets that might that might facilitate the integration process, like having family who are already um, in. But um, but for those in, in 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 who are getting to Germany are not through that resettlement. They're for the most part um, illegally have illegally crossed in the in the past um, and apply for asylum upon upon arrival. But that's interesting to think of matching a Turkey in Germany with a U.S. Canada sort of comparison that can try to ask a similar question in those cases and see if similar things pop up with the, as far as the leveling or accentuating effect of class differences. Do you want to jump in here? You, sorry, you're the, I feel like you were, you were nodding in the same process, or maybe not. Sorry. Or, um, you can come back to me. Okay, okay, great. Sorry. Yeah, I felt like, no, you want okay. to be on the list? Yes, please. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Siok Jun. Thank you for presenting yeah. me very, very interesting work. Uh -huh. um, the way I read your paper was your IV is more like um, boosted policies, yeah. and your DV is class difference among Syrian refugees. So whether it's percentage or level of class differences among Syrian refugees. And um, very similar, but another way to um, read this story is um, there are two two IVs, socioeconomic class of refugees, yeah. and the level of intervention of both countries. And your DV is refugees' adaptability. Mm -hmm. um, so that way you can make two by two tables. And for example, when socioeconomic class is high and um, intervention is low, mm -hmm. um, which is Turkey, then um, refugee might have more a better adaptability, adap mm -hmm. adaptive capability, and in other cases, maybe um, the refugees may have less capability to adapt to host societies. Um, and if you frame these ways, I think um, you can think of a lot of other DVs, yeah. like um, as we said upstairs in our conversation, maybe um, your DV can be integration. Yeah. Um, the, ref the refugees integration to the whole society and maybe even it may it will take a long long time but maybe the identity um, oh, so um, of course it, <laughs> it will be very difficult to change identity for a short term it will take long right. term but um, so by making this sort of two by two tables yeah. maybe you can um, think about other DBs you can you think is important mm -hmm. and and my another comment is about uh, the tool, um, about the tool. Um, have you ever considered about the survey? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wonder why that occurred to you. <laughs> right. Um, I sort uh -huh. of, um, do yeah, how would you use how would you use a survey like a sur uh, survey experiment or a survey um, just, just a public it does, opinion I, poll? I don't think it. I mean, I use survey experiments, but yep. in your case, I don't think it has, it has to be survey experiments, just surveys. Yeah. Um, of course, you might have the problem of like the representative, the, the representativeness of your sample, but if you can solve this sort of some problems, then if you can use surveys, um, you can see the trend, the, the yeah. change of the trend across time. So. Um, I said about the integration or adaptability and identity um, that will change across time. And if you use survey, I think you can see the trend yeah. um, across time. And also, you um, mentioned in our conversation uh, that um, the the first generation 
might have more adaptive um, problems, particularly, I think, maybe in Turkey. Um, however, in second generation, maybe in Germany, um, they will have less um, problem of adaptability because German governments uh, make them study German languages and um, they, they provide some formal training. So um, if you use surveys, I think you can see the change of adaptability, inter integration, identity, or sort of other degrees. Thanks, that, that's, that's, that's super helpful. And I'm just thinking about the, the two by two chart of that one, another, if on one axis it's socioeconomic class, but prior class, then one, uh, uh, one dependent variable might be up, mobility. If you are if you are wealthy, if you're rich coming into a weak weak environment, then you can have even greater mobility because you can transform your incoming capital into being super wealthy businessmen. Whereas, you know, wealthy coming into a high intervention doesn't really matter much. Wait in line. So, so I could still maybe have socioeconomic prior socioeconomic class, but some sort of socioeconomic class stratification or mobility or or, or rate or or swiftness of socioeconomic change. Might be something there too, and I, th I think that yes, you're. Right. I think surveys could be, could be really useful here, and I can even imagine asking questions like, "Do you think your class, your class, your things, your class status is getting better or worse? Do you expect, do you expect um, your 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 um, your children to be have achieve more than you will, or or be more more uh, financially well off or secure than you are, and that sort of thing too? So thanks. That's useful recommendation. Uh, ben Denison. Uh, thank you so much for the uh, interesting paper. I had a uh, few uh, just kind of thoughts that yeah. I could throw up. But the first Great. one I just had listening to Carrie, um, mm -hmm. maybe a possible solution to the endogeneity problem. Yeah. Not a solution, Great. a possible mitigation. Not, there, is not, there are no solutions. Uh, um, mitigation sounds good enough uh, or pretty good. So after, you know, you mentioned after 2016 mostly, they shut down the Balkan route uh, to get yes. to Germany. Yes. So, uh, and I know in Serbia right now, there's a bunch of, uh, basically because of Macedonia and Hungary, they're kind of just stuck uh, in Serbia uh, as right. refugees. Right. Um, this might require extra work, but those are people that largely intended, they self-selected to intend to go to Germany, but they did not get there, and now in a place with a more laissez-faire, mostly because the Serbs can't afford to have the German administration. Um, they're kind of just in camps uh, in the illegal economy, largely Absolutely. similar to the Turkish policy in lesser numbers. Uh, so you have two groups of people who both self-selected to go to Germany, oh, one got so there, one did it. Um, and that might be one way to kind of get at these policy differences. Um, that's really interesting. I yeah. don't know. The problem there is that you, it's like, I just looked up, I think there's only a couple, like 10,000 at most in Serbia versus, you know, the millions that are in Turkey, yeah. but it's that might be one way to get across the identification problem. Thank you. Um, another just quick idea is to kind of throw out is um, your paper rises, uh, raises lots of interesting just puzzles in my head that could be more dynamic. Um, mm -hmm. So first, um, what's going on with, I'm just curious if going to Nisha's point about networks, um, does the Turkish diaspora in Germany have any interaction with the Syrian refugees? <laughs> and do they, do they have, do their friends back in Turkey have reactions to the refugees there and that causes their reactions to the German, uh, the, the refugees once they get to Syria? Um, that makes things more complicated and messy, but it's just kind of an interesting, I'm curious what's going on. Um, another thought is, um, if you could dig in a little bit to, I know with the Bosnian refugees uh, in Germany, there was um, kind of a not so great response to them. They were very quick to try to push them back to Bosnia. 
Um, I'm curious if the German experience with the Bosnian refugees um, has any impact on how did they do they view it as a success versus a failure? Did that change how they viewed the refugee policy in the in the uh, interim years? Um, and I guess just for time reasons, um, I know in Germany as well. There's there's lots of they're dealing with inter and EU in general. There's interaction with other refugee populations. So for example, I know Germany just um, is trying to find ways to send Afghanistan. Af uh, people from Afghanistan back to Afghanistan um, and in uh, Italy you have lots of people from Libya coming and that's kind of you know there's all these inter is there any um, I'd be interested to see what's going on uh, separate from the Syrian population are there the are there interaction with the Syrians with other refugees and how do other refugees from other contexts view the Syrians is there any resentment over a competition mm -hmm. over benefits over you're not a real refugee I mean you can see these kind of competitive situations arising that could be um, interesting sad but interesting to Thanks. These are these are great suggestions. Um, I'll give some thought about maybe having to spend some time in Serbia and Macedonia. That's a really, really interesting. I think methodologically, a really interesting way of, of approaching it. And the last question about interactions among refugee populations. Yeah, absolutely. And often people are living. The shelters are these cross nationalities. So you have Afghans and Iraqis and. Um, and and uh, people from the Balkans as well are all living in the shelters t together. So um, and, th and there definitely are resentments because at this point, um, people are uh, refugees are only allowed or given these free language classes if they're from one of these five groups in which there's an assumption um, that there's typically a larger than 50% rate of the asylum application being approved. So they're all happy that asylum papers are in works. They haven't been granted asylum yet, but 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 Syrians and Iraqis and Eritreans which there's a high probability that their asylum application will be approved are allowed to start language classes immediately, whereas other groups where they are um, have a less than 50% asylum application approval rate are not, so they're just sort of languishing, um, and the Afghans are in that larger group. So absolutely, there's resentment. The Afghans look at the Syrians like they're five-star refugees who get all the privilege, um, whereas Syrians look at some of these other groups, and they're like, why are they even fleeing their country? We wouldn't have fled if we didn't have to. But you know, but the, the Serbians, they shouldn't even be here. So there's a lot of interesting, um, usually not terribly magnanimous conversations going both, both ways. Uh, great. Uh, Dan Linden? Um, really fascinating talk. And uh, just want to echo some comments about maybe methods or your research yes. question. Um, I would think you might profit from just sitting in front of a blackboard and just writing down all the things that are variable and all the yeah. things that are potentially constant. You know, even countries are constant some of the time, but vary between themselves in terms of their policies. And I think you'd be much more sophisticated than a two by two. I okay. see at least a two by four coming. Yeah. Here, um, so I'd be socioeconomics, and then legal status, housing, education, and work, mm -hmm. and then you just break it up. But there could be more variables, and antecedent conditions, etc. And also, I think it'd be really interesting to see. Maybe it was in the paper um, what questions you asked uh, people, because if you were asking them about their mm -hmm. background and jobs they had before, etc., you might mm -hmm. that mitigate endogeneity would seem, because you'd have some grasp of where things were, mm -hmm. and then you get correlation anyway where they were and where they ended up. Um, and I have uh, a bunch of questions, mm -hmm. um, just because it's so fascinating. You implied in Germany that there's a leveling effect mm -hmm. uh, in the refugees, but I doubt that there are doctors sweeping the floors, like in uh -huh. that one slide. Yeah. So 
isn't there some non-leveling that happens just the same way it's happening in Turkey? Mm -hmm. So that's a question there. And I think you'd also get some interesting um, results or comparisons by looking at other diasporas. And what is the literature? I don't know beans about what the literature on yeah. diasporas is, but it'd be interesting to find out because then you'd have a handle on what's new yeah. about the Syrian conflict. What's new about our day and age? What patterns are surprising or what patterns are consistent with history? And I think that would give you a lot of uh, leverage. And I think, you know, Nisha's right, you're going to have a lot of interesting normative problems with the policy recommendations, but the tighter you get your theoretical structure down, the more the recommendations will just fall out uh, and just be kind of factual in nature. Because I think, and here are my other two questions, you'll get a, a grip on what kind of assimilation policies work or don't. Mm -hmm. And which of the countries look at them as future assimilees or people to repatriate as fast as they can apply the boot to their butt? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, does Turkey envision three million new people? Uh, Germany, same question. And then, so which, you know, what's the effectiveness of assimilation policies? Assuming that's the goal, uh, I'd love to hear some words on that. And the same for potential radicalization. Mm -hmm. What kind of drift are you getting uh, about that kind of issue? Just to sell a few million more books, you can some <laughs> radicalization. Right. Oh, this is this is um, this is is great. I mean, the, the first one of the first questions is um, I was last summer I was in 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 Germany, and even when I was in Turkey, I was basically doing a sort of oral history, life life history type interviews for this book, getting people's long stories. So I haven't really researched this per se. No, no, no. So I, it was, these are sort of things I felt like I picked up along the way and the hints of what people were talking about, about their shelters or what I was observing myself when I spent time in, in the shelter. So it was, this paper is just to sort of put, gather some, some instincts and some hunches and some and riff off of some anecdotes and think about where that might go. But, um, but I'm going back to Germany in, in early June. So this is, um, this is encourages me to try to ask more systematically, what did you do back home? Where is it now? Where do you think you're headed? What do you envision for your children? What are your frustrations or opportunities? Yeah, really yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, do, so do, your hand just went, do you want to jump in on this too or yeah. specifically? Or? No, I'm, I'm, I can come in. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, so, but that's, but yeah, I mean, so that's, maybe I should have phrased it in, in this way of, um, I'm going back to Germany and, I, and I'll be there for three months in a couple of weeks. Uh, do you guys have any ideas for either what would be what I should do, what would be the most fruitful way to research this, or the kinds of questions to ask people? Maybe I'm going to throw that back as opposed to asking, answering all of your four really great questions, <laughs> which I'm going to absolutely keep in mind. Does that does that bring anything to tell? No, that's fine. Who here does surveys? Yeah. Like, what do you need to do in country to begin to set up who's going to do the survey for you? Yes. Yeah, What's it's, the it's, actual nitty gritty of doing it? I bet I would not waste be, a minute. It'd be hard in a I think the way that, like, yeah. I don't know, have you done surveys? No, I actually so, haven't. Um, so. so I think that the way in for you would be uh -huh. to partner with an NGO. Yeah, yeah. Um, and ideally an NGO that has a presence in both Germany and Turkey. Mm -hmm. And that also might help with some of your methodological issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there are, I do know of NGOs in, in, in Turkey that are running these types of surveys. I mean, the first question is a sampling frame and so forth. And, um, um, so it's it's complicated. I don't think I'm going to pull it off for the summer, but I can continue to explore for. I'll be back in in Germany again the summer of 2018. So that's why I can sort of each 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 summer take this a little bit, a little bit a little bit further. But I but in the people I I, I met, I wasn't 
necessarily always even asking their, to get as much information as they could on their prior class, their prior class backgrounds because it wasn't as relevant for their story, their stories of war and protest. But when you start thinking about variables, that seems to be one of your totally things. Completely. No, oh, thanks. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it hasn't been systematically done yet, but those are, um, but otherwise, I mean, are there thoughts about in terms of, besides doing a survey, which I'm not going to be able to pull off by June, what would be the most fruitful way to use a summer for this topic specifically? Yeah, I feel like because, um, just that actually goes a little bit with, like, networking and also yeah. think in terms of, like, solidarity. Yeah, I've heard, for instance, I've read in news that, um, we have large numbers of Kurdish speakers in Turkey and also Kurdish Syrian speakers that some people found some kind of they could communicate with each other so you could yeah. actually you don't have to know Turkish if you found Kurdish Turkish families to somehow get help and similarly also in um, Germany too I was uh, visiting um, families with a migration background and they for instance had rented one of their apartments to the Syrian <coughs> refugees who were also I'm not sure if they were also Kurdish speakers or not. And I've heard of um, friends of friends who are like college students, who are German college students with a migration background who might be Kurdish speakers, let's say from Turkey, and they volunteer with the shelters um, for like translations and stuff. So mm -hmm. some kind of, I guess when we look into the language issue a little bit, yeah. so maybe you don't necessarily need to know Turkish in Turkey. If you're especially in Eastern, Southeastern Turkey, when many people, even if they might not say immediately, do um, speak Kurdish and similarly and um, like Mersi. And you know, like really all over Turkey, people have migrated to, so that could be an interesting aspect also to look at. And what kind of, what does that even then actually even means for the politics of Turkey, since they have like such a contentious Thing with like the Kurdish population and the Kurdish guerrilla, what does that then mean? Also concerning all the terrorist attacks happening in Turkey, what does that mean for the how people will view all these Syrian refugees? That's something they just let Erdogan just let everyone in and look what's happening. Uh, Kate. All right. So you asked for questions. Yeah. I would be very interested to know, um, so it seems right, so you've been to Germany once, um, and, uh, and, the and, and based on my understanding of everything you've said, the people who are there self-selected to get there, they got there illegally, so there was some desire that pushed them to Germany. I would be interested to know if they came directly from Syria or if they stopped over in another country first, and then um, beyond that, what was it that made them want to go to Germany as opposed to staying someplace else? Um, and the reason I think that would be really interesting is because it might get at that money versus skill um, piece that that, um, that Carrie was talking about. Uh, in particular, and actually I ended up here, where I started was uh, being interested in Germany's credential or certification requirements, right? So if you are a physician who's trained in another country and you come to the United States, you have to completely recertify and redo your residency. Um, is it the same in Germany? Um, or if you go through those language classes and you can stick it out, you, if you can then start practicing again right away, that might really impact your um, calculus as to where you're gonna set up, particularly for people with, um, with 
education skills that they want to apply to a specific field, right? So a business person is going to have a much easier time getting going again in a laissez-faire economy, whereas somebody who has who is in um, a very specific profession with very specific expert knowledge might um, have a desire to go someplace where they have more access to the system of, of credentialing uh, than they would in a laissez-faire system. Um, and so I think bringing that into, into your analysis would be really interesting, along with, um, you know, you said in Turkey it's um, temporary protection. Right. Right. So, you know, what was coming, you know, what was coming through the grapevine? Was it that if you went to Germany, you might get permanent citizenship or, or a permanent residency? Yes. Um, and, and how did that factor in? Particularly since people hit Turkey first, Germany was a later movement, right? Um, so the timing in how long the war had been going on in Syria, at what point did people give up on the idea that they might be able to move back home and they wanted to move someplace to start over? Um, so what brings people out of the holding pattern and into mm -hmm. moving forward? This is no, terrifically. Thank you. This is really, um, yeah. This is. I totally convinced. This needs to be part of the the paper too. So I think in the in the in the paper somewhere there's. Uh, I don't remember the details of the, the survey that was done with the Syrians in Greece and very early in the 2015 wave who had their sights on getting to northern and, and western Europe and asked these questions about where were you coming from, how long had you stayed, what are your reasons, and something like three-fourths had already spent time in at least a year in, in one of these holding questions, the majority of which were in Turkey. Um, and the, the largest single answer to the question of why are you moving on was um, to find work that is decent, I don't know the wording is sort of either decent or at my level of, of qualifications. So and in my, informally with talking both to Syrians in Turkey and in Germany, Syrians talk about Turkey with words like, there's just no future there. There was no, you maybe weren't starving, you maybe find some sort of job where you, even so the, the middle class folks were, but you, I, wasn't, I wasn't totally destitute, but I was never going to break out of, of basically working all day, coming home, sleeping, working the next day, and just making enough to survive, and a thought of continuing your education or eventually doing whatever it was you really aspired to do was just a sense that that was impossible. So I'm not sure about the, the credential and qualification requirements. From what I have read, it, it, it seems like there's complaints that it's too onerous and it's too slow and it's filled with bureaucracy and not as smooth as it can be. but but still exists, whereas in Turkey it just doesn't at this point. I mean, it's, yeah, an architect, forget it. You know, you, you are filtered into that, that part of the economy. Or, as you said, the, with the laissez-faire can just jump it. So even if it's, I think it's the, the credentials is slower and more bureaucratic than a lot of refugees would like, it's, I think it is held up there as, as some possibility if you can stick it out long, long enough. Um, and, and if not, that there are also opportunities to continue education and go into maybe a different field, um, also, which just seems like opportunities that are foreclosed there. So um, I don't have all the details I should, but I know I, I, I need to. So thanks. This is really, I'm, again, I'm not sure what to, what to do with it because it's still, I don't know if this will just more expose the endogeneity problems or reveal them, but at least it has to be a, a clear part of I mean, I expose, resolve them or, or expose them, but it has to be a part of the, the, the complete picture of who peop, who, why people wind up where they do. Okay, uh, I guess we're at B. Yeah. Uh, touching bottom. And we're good. The, uh, 
the, the question here. Yeah. Um, and uh, first of all, I always say that uh, we have a very Catholic with a small C view of international <laughs> security. So as long as war is somewhere in the story, uh, you fit within the uh, broad MDISC uh, mandate. Uh -huh. um, but the, the, the serious question I wanted to ask, I, uh -huh. I don't know if this is a function of just, I've read uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom one too many times, uh -huh. but I found the discussion of Germany really depressing. Oh. Um, and, and this was, you know, the, the, the accounts of the refugee seekers, it's like 40 days I had to sit in line and uh, had to keep going back and nobody could tell me what my number was yeah. and then I got my number and then they started calling higher numbers and I finally, after another 40 days, figured out what was going on and yeah, they lost my file. Uh, really, it was, it was sort of depressing. And, but conversely, and, and your uh, your discussion of the uh, Miami of the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, you didn't have the picture yeah. in there, but you painted a sort of sunnier picture that this was uh, a more dynamic environment. Uh -huh. um, that uh, you know the I'm, the the laissez-faire approach of the Turks um, created a more uh, vibrant uh, refugee uh, community. And uh, I'm not sure that was the story I was supposed to come away with. Um, and, uh, uh, and I'm not sure if I am reading the evidence in the paper through you know, some jaundiced libertarian goggles or something like that, but it really was sort of striking that uh, you know, they may have gone to Germany because you know, they, they saw that as the land of uh, you know, milch and honey or whatever the German word is. Um, but that didn't seem to be, for a lot of people, uh, the story. And it, and it seemed like the, you know, the trade-off was that everybody could be treated equally badly in Germany versus uh, the Turkey was, was different. So what, what am I missing about the story? Get me back on the right, right. proletarian, uh, uh, class-conscious uh, uh, path here, Wendy. Right. No. Well, uh, thanks. Because this is a uh, this is an important warning and, and get to Denise's issue about the sort of the normative policy implications. Yeah, I should be much clearer because you should also leave the discussion of Turkey with a sense of five hundred thousand kids being exploited in child labor and working for like twelve hour shifts for 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 pennies, um, sewing clothes for H and M all day long, or or begging on the street. Um, or picking cotton and so forth. So there's also um, a tremendous amount of, of poverty and exploitation and, and total vulnerability, and and the, and the child labor I think is the most is, is the most uh, devastating of all of that. So I will will rewrite this picture to show that there's there's a, the small the the the, the Mersen elite is a, is a much smaller portion ultimately. Much smaller numbers are living it up large than our than our. Um, in, in real in real impoverishment um, in the Turkey situation, and I think the flip side on on the Germany is 
that I was there in a moment of, but this is still a very initial stage and the German bureaucracy was totally overloaded with much larger numbers than it ever expected and was groping to try to deal and that's a source of the bureaucratic backlogs and in some ways it's still hats off to the country's been able to to cope with it as much as they can. I mean, immediately was hiring hundreds of new bureaucrats and training and has hired something like 15,000 new German teachers to meet up with the lugs. So I think refugees are extremely impatient because it's all so much slower and they're so impatient to get on with their lives. Um, and it is slow at first and that causes a tremendous amount of frustration with a system that's just been overloaded. But in one year or two years or three years or five years or ten years, I think the hope is that um, People remember, oh, yeah, when we first came here and we lived in the shelter, that was so bad. But now we're settled and our kids are in school and they speak fluent German and they have their German friends and we ultimately are working and have independent, decent lives. And, and I think the home is a big, a big part of that. The shelters and the sense of no privacy, no dignity, the impermanence is, is tremendously um, uh, psychologically and socially difficult for, for families. And once they can get a place of their own, can begin to feel like like normal people. So I think the the hope is that 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 that, that bureaucratic um, stifling sense of so much cause so much frustration will eventually have been a 2015-2016 story, and in both Germany as a country and the refugee newcomer population will push past it and get to a place of much greater possibility and um, and prosperity. I think that's the the hope. Yeah. So, yeah. Three times? Yeah. Three times. not to be a stifling bureaucrat, no, no. we have it's time a, for a brief question. Yeah. Um, was this just a comment? So I, I think that there are at least um, three keepers here. Okay, great, because um, I kind of think so too. Yeah. I mean, there are probably more, but so here, here are three ideas. So one is, I think you should be doing a survey in Turkey, okay. um, not so much in Germany, on who's trying, that, that helps address the endogeneity problem. Who's trying to leave? Who's tried and failed? Who's not trying to leave? Right. So okay. That's, that's really what you need. To, that's what you. I think you should embrace the endogeneity. You, should, you know, it's never going to go away. But yeah. this is a way of. See, I've been waiting for the embrace the endogeneity. Yeah. Well, they, glad, to, glad to uh, do your service. Um, that, that's great. Second, but at least figure out what's yeah. going on. Yeah. I really like Dan's comment about radicalization, and I think that there's a way of tying in the network. Um, piece of this with radicalization that you could explore also. Like mm -hmm. that could be another interesting um, paper to, okay. or piece of the project to work on. And then finally, it seems to me that we're sort of dancing around this, this way of framing the, yes. uh, the project, the puzzle, which is that given that um, there's, there's this uh, mismatch between refugees' perceptions of their socioeconomic mobility in these two different places and what actually seems to be happening. Um, and that's that's the puzzle. Right? Oh, that's interesting. That you have an answer to. Or you have part of an answer to. The refugees' perceptions of their own socioeconomic standing and possibility and... Because really, for you, the, the, the dependent variable is the delta in socioeconomic status, right? Mm. Um, so, but why do, why do refugees think that they're going to do better in Germany when actually it seems to be that there's more leveling in Germany than there is in Turkey. Thanks, that's great. And then maybe the other portion of all of this is this time question of maybe there's there's leveling in the beginning and ultimately there's there's 
possibility, things like if you can slog it out with language and accreditation and, and ultimately have a chance to be a professional again, or maybe you won't see the fruits of it, but your children will in a way they never will in Turkey when they're not even going to have legal status. So um, thanks. That's really helpful. Great. And that takes us almost exactly to uh, <laughs> 6 o'clock. And uh, it just remains for me to uh, ask everybody to join me in thanking Wendy Perlman for a uh, terrific presentation and also going out uh, the uh, spring semester of uh, 2017 uh, on a high note. So thanks no, for thank making you. the long trip thank down, Thank you so Wendy. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap. <laughs>